I'm sure that many of you here this morning are now aware that on Friday morning we received the devastating news that Andy Dennis was killed in a car accident on the way to work. Andy has been an integral and much-loved part of this church family for many, many, many years. And I know that it's caused a great deal of shock and sadness to many of you gathered here today, myself included. St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, calls the church to mourn with those who mourn. And for anyone who knew Andy, this is not a difficult thing. He will be greatly missed. And our hearts this morning go out to his family, Hannah, Joel, Malachi, Lydia. And Hannah and Joel and Malachi are with us this morning um, at the back there. And I know that the family have been touched by the love and support that you've shown them already. And I also know that you as a church will continue to gather around them and to care for them in the coming days, weeks and months. They need their church family now more than ever. Andy had many loves in his life, his wife and children, his teaching career, his mountain biking, but in particular, the Lord Jesus. And as this morning, as we mourn the loss of our close friend, we can take comfort in the knowledge that he is with his Lord and Saviour. And we know that he's in a place where there's no more pain or suffering where we're told that every tear will be wiped away. And we can thank God for that. And this morning, before we move on in our service, I want, us to, I want us to stand together as a church family, and I want us to pray together. I want us to pray for Hannah, for Joel, for Malachi, for Lydia, for Andy's parents, Tim and Julie, and his sister Kate, that they receive comfort and strength in the coming days as they come to terms with this loss. And it'd be good to pray also for his school, Gentle Shore Primary and his class, Sycamore. And for the many young adults, youth, children, and all of us whose lives have been touched by his ministry in this church. Would you please stand with me? If you're near Hannah and the children, perhaps you would just like to put your hand on their shoulder. I wonder if just... Two or three of you would be bold enough this morning just to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Thank you for Andy. Thank you for, for who he was, what he meant to us, Father, for all the love that he had to give. And Father, for the huge difference that he made in so many people's lives in this church. Father, thank you for the time that we spent with him. And God, we just ask now, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon his family. Father, that you would bring them comfort. Father, that you would give them strength. Father, that you would be so evident, so close, so near in the days ahead. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I wonder if the band would just come and lead us in another song. There's a verse, isn't there, that we all know from 1 Corinthians 12. If one part suffers... Every part suffers with it. And if one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. And this morning it's a time of great suffering. And 
I would say at times like these, it's so wonderful to be a part of this church family. I think that you are absolutely amazing as people. Thank you for being you. Thank you for all that you bring. It's great in those times of rejoicing together. And it's quite horrendous in times like today when we feel so much for Hannah and the kids and the wider family. And please continue in your prayers for them. There have been many occasions in my life when I have asked, Why? Why God? And I'm sure that you have been in that place too. I remember some years back asking, Why? With regards to my father's death by cancer, and it wasn't because the cancer took him, but it was because of the agonizing, undignified manner in which he left us. I ask God why every time I hear of another boatload of refugees capsizing in the Mediterranean. And when I watch on the television the coverage of earthquakes and famines and tornadoes and mudslides killing thousands of people. A few years back I asked why when I travelled in India in the city of Mumbai. And as far as the eye could see, lining both sides of a noisy, filthy, congested streets were small shanties made out of cardboard and corrugated sheets, right next to a, a major road where the buses and cars spewed out their exhaust fumes. Naked children played near open sewage ditches. People with missing limbs, contorted by the deformities others contorted by the deformities that they had were just that, sat there begging. And most of those people were born in that place, will live all of their lives in that place and would probably die in that place. And I remember at that time saying, why God? Where are you in this festering hellhole? Closer to home, I often ask God why he allows Christian people I know, people who have lived good lives, who have served him well, to then have their minds ravaged by Alzheimer's, sitting in nursing homes, just waiting to die. Why, God? Why prolong the agony? Why not take them to be with you? They love you. They want to be with you. On many occasions, I'm asked why, when I have witnessed young children being devastated by cancer before they've had a chance to live life, and I've asked God why. I've asked God why when I've conducted the funeral services of stillborn babies. And I've asked God why did he invest in these lives which were cradled in their mother's wombs for six or seven or eight or nine months but never had the opportunity to see the world, never to breathe their first breath. I've asked God why many, many times and I'm asking God why again today. Why my friend, our friend, Andy, lost his life in a road traffic accident two days ago, aged just 41. The subject of where is God when life hurts isn't just a, a sterile intellectual debate issued in our universities, but it's an intensely personal matter.
It's a matter that can often leave us bewildered and confused and angry. And I suppose if we conducted a, a, an opinion poll in the town centre and asked participants the question, if you could ask God only one question and you knew that he would give you an answer, what would you ask him? And I can guarantee you that the response, the top response, would be why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? And I suppose this morning I could attempt to answer that in a variety of ways. I could answer it philosophically, engaging some of the world's best thinkers and academics. I could quote to you what leading theologians have said and what Bible scholars have said on this question. In fact, you can find a whole series of talks given uh, by us here on that subject on our website in the sermon section. But I would say that this is far more than a philosophical question. Because when we are experiencing heartache, I would be the first person to say that answers are overrated. To be able to provide reasons of, for evil and suffering in the world does not bring comfort to the hurting. Broken hearts are not healed by explanations. They are healed by the grace and the mercy of God. Explanations never ease the pain. What we need is to know that God is our rock in times of trouble. We need to know that he will lift us up when we fall down. We need to know that through the storm, his love and presence will be our anchor. The author of Psalm 46, I'm sure many of you know the words very well, where he says that God is our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. In other words, the psalmist declares that during times of earth-shattering, mind-numbing, fear-inducing catastrophe and chaos in our lives, when everything appears to be falling down around us, when it appears that all hope is gone, and when heaven is silent, there is one thing that never changes, and that is God's grace. God's love is constant. It never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. We sang a little bit earlier, higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant through the trial and the change. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Paul, the apostle, asks a rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And then he answers his own question. And he answers it this way. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, and just in case he's missed anything in his own list, he then adds, No anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
Paul also wrote, wrote, absent from the body is present with the Lord. And Andy, who loved Jesus, is experiencing immeasurable delight in the presence of the Lord right now. For as Paul wrote in a, on another occasion, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Sorry about the pun, but heaven is out of the world, out of this world. It really is. And I just wonder if Andy has a new mountain bike that doesn't rust or decay or get flat tires. I can only wonder because we're not really told what heaven is like other than an indication that it's an amazing place. It's a place where God is and it's a place that will be infinitely better than anything that we could ever imagine. Paul again in that wonderful chapter, Romans chapter 8 in verse 18, says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I tell you what, if you've got Bibles, underline those three words, not worth comparing. Romans 8, 18. Death shall not separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Andy, I believe, is experiencing the full extent of his love, which has transported him safely from this life to the next. And one day, we shall experience that great truth ourselves. There will be a great reunion. And just as death shall not separate us from the love of God, neither shall we be separated from God's love in this life. You see, God promises not to leave us or forsake us in those times when we need Him most. We have a promise that God is going to be our all-sufficiency, that He is going to be providing us His grace in our deepest time of need, that He is the one who sends His Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to bring comfort into our lives and peace and that sense of well-being at times of our deepest need. God promises to be with us through our pain. In Psalm 34 we read these words, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147 verse 3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jesus on one occasion was asked why something bad had happened. And if you were to turn to your Bibles, don't do it just now and look this up afterwards. But in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to, 1 to 5, um, some people came up to Jesus and explained that something had happened, that some worshippers at the temple when they were bringing their sacrifices in the city of Jerusalem, that they were worshipping God and Pilate had, the Roman governor, had murdered them. And the clear inference of them bringing this to Jesus is that they wanted to know why. Why, God? Why could you let this happen? What did these people do wrong to have been killed by Pilate and to die in the way that they did? And that was a kind of the mindset of the ancient Jewish people. They thought that these people must have done something wrong to have ended the way that they did. 
And in that day, there was a second event on the lips of so many people. And that was that 18 people had been killed when the Tower of Siloam fell upon them. Inter interestingly enough, that there is no mention of this in the history books of those two events. And we don't have it in Matthew's Gospel or Mark's Gospel or John's Gospel. It's only Luke. And if it were not for Dr. Luke, who was one of the greatest historians of all time, we wouldn't even know of these, these stories. And you see, in that, what Luke tells us, one, devastation was caused by human cruelty. Pilate was a vicious man. The other was caused by a terrible accident. Towers sometimes fall, and people who are in their vicinity sometimes get crushed. And it's interesting that Jesus chose not to answer those two questions that they were asking him. In response to the question, Jesus asked them a question. And he said to them, do you think the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee? Is that why they suffered? Not at all, he said to them. Then he goes on and he says, what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners in, uh, uh, the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, he said. And Jesus makes it clear that these events did not occur because of some wrongdoing by the people who were killed. Which cut across this ancient Jewish way of thinking. And Jesus said that if a person dies in a tragic accident or miraculously survives, it is not a measure of that person's righteousness. These people, in the story that Luke brings to us, did nothing to deserve their fates. Actually, Jesus didn't comment on why those two tragedies occurred. He chose not to focus on the cause, but to focus on what everyone's response should be. And that's very important. He didn't focus on the cause. He wasn't prepared to answer their, their question of why. But he did respond by saying to them that how they responded was the all-important thing. He used those, both tragedies to point some eternal truths. And he said to the crowd around them when he heard these stories, unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, what he was saying is let us not ask questions of why God. But let us make sure that we are right with God. As the same thing might happen to us. That's what he's saying there. We could be the next victim of that falling tower. We could be the next victim of political terrorism. Or of illness. Or of an RTA. None of us knows what is around the corner. None of us can confidently be assured of tomorrow. And therefore, we need to get right with God today. <coughs> and what I find most interesting in this account in Luke's Gospel is that these people came to Jesus. They wanted Jesus to answer their philosophical question. Why did these people die? Whose fault was it? Was God to blame? But Jesus chose not to respond to their questions. For Jesus was far more concerned about the way they responded to what actually happened. Therefore, based on that passage, 
I could be quite confident in saying here this morning to us that if Jesus were here in the flesh and was asked the question, why did Andy need to leave us on Friday? Jesus would choose not to answer that question. But I tell you what he might say to us. He might say to us, never mind about asking such questions. They're not for you to know. But I want you to know and to be sure that you have turned your heart towards God. That you have placed your trust in him. That you too one day will meet God. It might come soon. It might be many years off yet, but that day is coming. And you see what happened to Andy, and our hearts bleed over this terrible news. It's a lesson of life's fragility. That our lives are like a vapor, says the New Testament. They're transient, they're temporary. It's here, it's gone. And that's why Jesus told us all not to be rich in terms of earthly wealth, and materials, but to be rich in our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. To get our priorities sorted. To make room for God in our lives. To give him first place, as Andy did. What he is saying is don't look back on what has happened, but ask how the events of Friday will change your life looking forward. And by God's grace, to be bold enough to make those changes in your life today. Don't procrastinate. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. One day, when we come face to face with Jesus, we might ask for explanations. I think I will. But then I don't think it's going to matter that much. We probably won't need answers. They probably won't be that important to us. But until then, it is good for us to reflect of the words of God through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 when he says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And Paul writes similarly in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great chapter on love. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I shall know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. It's the now and it's the then. The now in this life and then when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at this moment, we see imperfectly, we see partially, we have incomplete knowledge. Then we will see with perfect clarity. We will know everything completely. But between now and then, God requires that we trust him and love him and continue to serve him with everything that we have within us. You see, God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. It's an incarnation. God isn't some distant, detached, 
disinterested deity, but he entered the world and into our pain, and he sits beside us in the lowest places of our lives. It was in a, the depths of a Nazi death camp that Corrie ten Boom wrote, No matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. No matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. Are we broken? Well, he was broken for us. Are we despised? He was despised and rejected of men. Are we sorrowful and grief-stricken? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do people betray us? He was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. And this morning you might be struggling with illness or family problems or financial difficulties or bereavement or some depressive illness or divorce or unemployment or a thousand and one other hardships. And you might have asked, where is God and why me? I'd like to say to you this morning that the answer to our suffering is in the answerer. The answer is not in a bunch of words, it's in the word. It's not in a tightly woven philosophical argument. Our answer is in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Dr. John Stott once wrote these words, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed. The ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote look on his face. Detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet. Back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks. Mouth dry and intolerably thirsty. Plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. Essentially what John Stott is saying there is that he knows. He knows. He has been tested in every way that we are being tested right now. He's not aloof. He's not detached. He's not disinterested. But he is a God who is touched by our infirmities. He is the God who wept at the f his friend's graveside. He is a God who sits where we sit and feels our pain. Some years ago, a friend of mine wrote a song when he was experiencing cancer. It was the cry of his heart. He didn't know whether he was going to live or die. And we are going to sing that now. Thank you, guys. The words, maybe we could put them up, please. Your thoughts are so much higher than mine. I see so dimly at times. Your ways are so much higher than mine. 
and yet you care about my life. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to hold to you. Teach me to walk with you even though sometimes I'm blind. Teach me to run to you. Teach me to come to you. Teach me to trust you, Lord, and your plan for my life. Teach me to trust your ways, O Lord. And this morning, as we sing these words, let these words be a response of our hearts. For some people here, it may be that this morning you are saying to God, I am, not, I, I, I am prepared not to know all the answers, but dear Lord, I am willing to trust you. I think these words will be very, very appropriate as we, we sing them as a response to the Lord this morning. Would you stand with me, please?